Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to episode 62 of Talking with Painters. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, welcome. I'm Maria Stolger and I talk with Australian painters about their lives and art, how they got started, challenges they've faced and what they're doing now. And if I'm lucky, even studio insights on how they do what they do. I've got some great artists coming onto the show this year, but I'm kicking off 2019 with something a little bit different, a two-part episode on a great exhibition currently showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and I'm uploading both at the same time for optimum binge listening. The show is called Tony Tuxen, The Abstract Sublime. Tuxen, who died about 45 years ago, is considered by many to be one of Australia's most significant abstract expressionist artists. But his personal story is just as interesting because he kept his art under wraps for most of his painting life. He was only 52 when he died. So I'll first be talking with the Art Gallery of New South Wales Senior Curator of Australian Art and Mastermind of this show, Denise Mamoki, and we'll be talking about his life and career. You can then immediately follow on in episode 63 and listen to my conversation with renowned Australian abstract artist Aida Tomescu where we talk about a few of the works in depth. That was a great experience for me and I came away with a whole new view, not only on Tuxen, but abstraction as well. The show is on for a further two weeks after this episode goes online. It ends on the 17th of February 2019, so if you happen to be in Sydney and get a chance to go, you could listen while you look. You'll see in the notes on your podcast app or on the website that I've marked the point where we speak about each work, so you can always skip ahead whenever you like. Images of all the works are also on talkingwithpainters.com with the kind permission of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. They're on the page of episode 63, so you can scroll while you listen. So I start off with my interview with Denise Mamaki. Thanks for joining me today, Denise. The, the Taxon Show is brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit about Tony Tuxen's association with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's a very important one, and I think it played a big role in his development as a painter and also his identity as a painter, I guess, fed into um, his work at the gallery as well. So it was this sort of nice... Um, pairing and partnership in a way between those two professional guises that he had. Mm. He he started at the gallery as an attendant and a cleaner, would you believe, oh, in 1950. Really? He was just out of art school, so he went to East Sydney Tech, as it was called in those days, now the National Art School. He'd done a three-year painting diploma course um, after the war, and I think he had decided he wanted to be an artist. Uh, he didn't want to be a commercial artist. He wanted to be a painter and follow, you know, those pursuits as a painter. So I guess mm. he was looking for an income, really, oh, where okay. he could still work as an artist. So the fact that this job came up as a cleaner at the art gallery, I suppose he thought, great, I'll be working in an arts environment. But um, he came in, like I said, as a cleaner and attendant in 1950, but then very quickly rose in, in the ranks and became assistant to the director a few months later. And I, I understand that sort of caused um, a bit of conflict. He felt there was a conflict between his own art practice. He, he was sort of okay, you know, during the 1950s when he was still, I suppose, in a more junior role, if you want, um, at the gallery, 
and I should say that this is also in the context of the gallery staff in those days was about 12 people and there were two professional staff, the director and a conservator. So when we talk about that rapid rise in the ranks, it is within a very small context of a very small, um, you know, staff yeah, right. at the gallery. Gosh, the gallery's really come a long way since uh, then. <laughs> but then by the time he died in 1973, there was a staff of over 80 and, and a lot of professional staff so he was really instrumental in in expanding the gallery and um, oh, to, to that status of a professional working art museum oh. but going back to your question about um, the impact um, on his role as an artist so yes interestingly he came here with the idea that he could do this job and then go home and paint after hours but increasingly you know during the 1950s particularly as he sort of rose in the ranks and eventually became deputy director, he, he realised that his work as a publicly um, exhibiting artist was in conflict with his role as, as a deputy director here, you know, which also involved curatorial duties. Mm. So it's that, um, that conflict of interest that he was really interestingly aware of because people weren't so much in those days. Mm. And the director, how missing well, would him? Be, would, well, would it? Sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. Would, would it? Is it? Is the conflict because he thinks if he's exhibiting, mm. then others might feel that that he might get what some sort of favoritism? Or? There is that, and also you know when he's dealing with um, uh, um, private galleries in purchasing works. There might be some conflict of interest there if he's showing works with them oh, and there's I sort of see. some sort of favouritism as well. So it's just that idea, I think, of making sure that you keep arm's length with the commercial world. Obviously, you're dealing with them, but you can't have any sort of bias in that sense. And if he was showing works with galleries, there would be some form of, you know, potentially bias. Yeah, there. I see. Particularly if you're buying works for the gallery or proposing to buy works for the gallery. Yeah. So. So Hal Missingham was the director of the gallery who employed Tuxen and who Tuxen was working as de eventually deputy director with. He encouraged Tuxen to paint. Uh, Tuxen was, uh, sorry, Missingham was a painter himself and he did show his work. So he did encourage Tuxen, not only in his roles at the gallery, but also to, to show his work as a painter. So he did show in group exhibitions during the 1950s, but he became more aware of that ethical, moral dilemma, um, if you like, mm. by the 19, late 1950s. And he decided by early 1960s to not, to stop showing his art. Mm. I also think, as others do as well, that there was more to it than these professional considerations. I think the nature of his work, the fact that he developed his work, which was so intensely private, in seclusion, in isolation, I think that became a feature of his art and his art making that that suited him as well. You know that it, that it was a private pursuit. It was a really intensely personal and private pursuit. I found it interesting in the course of researching this show how few people knew about his art making, or maybe they knew that he painted, but very few went to his studio. Very few saw his work. Mm. So even Guy Warren, who was a friend, painter friend of his from art school days, mm. he told me that he, he obviously knew Tuxen was a painter, but they very rarely discussed art. He didn't 
really see his work um, wow, during that's the 60s. Amazing. Yeah. Given how large they are and how, you know, they must have taken a lot of room up in his house. Well, he had a, <laughs> he had a private studio, you know, a private studio. He had a studio in yeah. his house, but from what I can gather, it was his personal private domain. Oh, isn't that interesting? And yeah, yeah. So, so that sort of isolation, seclusion, if you like, that played into, I think, that very introspective role mm. of his of his art as well. And what changed to lead up to his first show at Waters in 1970? Well, well, who knows ultimately why he made that decision? Apparently he said to Margaret Tuxon, his, his wife, oh, he just wanted to see his works up on the walls. But as she said in an interview later on, of course, if he wanted to do that, he could just hire a hall and put them up. Mm. He obviously did have a desire to, to become public as an artist. Mm. And by that stage, and we're talking 1970, at the time that he had his first solo show at Waters Gallery, he uh, had professional curators working at the gallery, so he was no longer really in that role of buying works or proposing artworks, apart from the Aboriginal and Pacific art collections for the gallery. So. Perhaps in his mind he felt there wasn't that great conflict mm. as there previously was. Yeah, I see. And what was the response to that show, that first show? The critics of both that show in 1970 and then the follow-up one in 1973 were just over overwhelming. You know, mm. I think his work came to a lot of people as a revelation because they knew of him in the art world as an arts administrator. But you know, had no idea that he was producing these yeah. really... Well, apparently, I understand that, you know, Frank Waters and Geoffrey Legg, who, you know, owned the gallery, yes. they were yeah. a bit surprised themselves yes. when they went and saw it. Yeah, I mean, they, they tell, uh, you know, that fantastic story in the lead-up to that show where they were a bit nervous going over because they, you know, he was a powerful figure in the art world. They didn't want to displease him, so they thought, we'd better go and have a look and had no idea what they were going to see and Frank Waters was immediately just struck by the power of them. Mm. I think Geoffrey, interestingly, wasn't so taken at first, but he, he certainly did come round yeah, yeah. and was a very firm supporter and champion, both of them, of his work yeah, um, yeah. during his lifetime and also beyond that as mm. well. Well, yes, sadly, he passed away only months after his second show. Yeah, that's um, right, yes. You know, who knows what he would have been capable well, of. Well, exactly. And given that his art changed direction so many times and took on new forms, you know, we can, we're only left guessing as to mm. what might have come, what might have come next. Mm. And that's what's so great about this show is that each room has just got this whole, you know, next level of what, what he was doing and there's so much difference between each set of works. Is that, it must have been a mammoth task sort of deciding how you would group them and how you, which ones you'd choose. Like, what, how does that, from a curator's point of view, is yeah. that a huge task? Well, Tuxen, once he did move into abstraction by the late 1950s, he did tend to work in series. So very, there's a very coherent sense of, these are the works he's doing, you know, in the late 50s, these ones in the 61 to 65, and then his, his last works in the 70s. So you, in that sense, it was easy in the distinctions, oh, you know, those distinctions of his, his practice. Having said that, there's variations within, 
you know, those groupings as mm. well. He, he wouldn't just stick to it. He'd sometimes go off on slightly different tangents. But the idea for this show was, yes, really show how he'd work on a series and then develop the ideas, then leave it and move to something that looks completely new. Completely new in the sense that it has that same fundamental drive and energy to it, but a different appearance mm. It's mm. as well. So mm. I think Tuxen's drive to, to transform is really apparent in his art. You know, the fact that he's looking at something, looking at it so intensely and intently, and then moves on to something else. And that's kind of, again, an overlap with his work as an arts administrator. You know, he's desired to transform this gallery into a real professional 20th century gallery with a, a, a very distinct curator vision mm. at its heart was mm. something that he did very successfully. Uh, well, he more or less established the Aboriginal and Pacific collection in the gallery, hasn't did he? He, he played, yeah, he, he certainly played a very important role in that and he worked with um, a man called Dr Stuart Scoogle who was an orthopaedic surgeon who had travelled round um, various communities of Indigenous Australia and had developed an interest of the art of Aboriginal Australia. And he knew of Tuxens, he had learned of Tuxens' interest in oh, Aboriginal right. arts. So he contacted him, they formed this friendship and both of them together had this desire to establish a, a collection of art um, at, at the gallery. Mm. And Scoogle financed it, he financed the commissions, but Tuxen was very much um, part of, of that um, commissioning process and they went out to the communities in Yukala mm. and Melville Island to oversee these commissions. And That's right. It was the first time that Aboriginal art had been commissioned for an art gallery. So they were seen, mm. obviously, as artworks. Mm. Yes, rather than like an Indigenous sort of work. Ethnographic, yeah, yes. that's right, from an anthropological point of view, a museum object, exactly. they're an art object. And then and the artist's names are <coughs> the attached artists to, names, the, to yeah. the works. And their, you know, their individual sense of creativity as they saw it was, you know, studied and a focus of the works mm. as well. Mm. So, so, yes, very important uh, in, in really foregrounding the art of Aboriginal Australia as as central to our culture as a nation as well. Mm. So it was a, a huge moment, I think, in bringing the works from Melville Island and the Barks from Yukala and placing them centrally in the gallery. Mm. It's, it, it would have been a very impressive thing to see, I think. Oh, and, definitely. Yeah. And, I mean, can you see that influence in his own work? Uh, very much so. He first saw Aboriginal art at a show at David Jones Gallery, it Bark Paintings from northeast Arnhem Land, and he was really struck by them. You know, he might have seen the odd example before, but it's here where he saw a proper coherent exhibition. And Margaret Tuxen later said she remembers him coming home from it and thinking this is something really important has happened to him. He, he's seen something really kind of life-changing. Yeah. Um, so it's from there that he developed his interest, but I think really on those trips that he made to Yirrkala in 1959 and to Melville Island in 1958 to oversee these commissions from the gallery, I think that really had a huge impact on him as an artist mm. because he's there watching these works being made 
and you know, within Western terms, he's seeing this incredible language of abstraction mm. coming into being. But he also realises that there's this very deep, very complex and hidden symbolic content in these works. Mm. And I think the fact that his own work, you know, was so personal, so private, of course, we're talking vastly different contexts here, but that idea that a mark, a line, you know, the mark of a brush or the incision of a brush could have such deep, layered, complex meaning. I think that, you know, was of interest mm. to him as well. And do you think that coincided with his move from more figurative work to abstraction? I think it cemented something. So when it, the, the dating of Tuxen's work is very imprecise because he never dated anything. Right. So we think that from around the time that he came back from those trips to Northern Australia, so by the late 1950s, he'd really produced, started producing that first sustained series of the, what we've called in the exhibition, the Scribbly paintings. Yeah. Um, these works that have this enormous build-up of layers of lines um, and, and really these sort of symbolic forms that are of his own making. You know, we don't really know what they mean, but they're all in there in this dense layering of, of his compositions. You know, I think going to Northern Australia really galvanised his own need to move into that language, his own language of mm. abstraction. Mm. Having said that, he's also looking, of course, at the art of American abstract expressionism. So it's not, you know, I think the Aboriginal um, art and later Melanesian art paid a huge was a huge influence on his own work, but it was in a wider pool of yeah, influences Yeah, I suppose as well. it's like, yeah, most artists would have that. Yes. You know, because, uh, I mean, there are also, um, I understand, sort of uh, influences from Fairweather, Cezanne, Matisse. <gasps> yeah. Um, yeah. A really wide range of yeah. different artists. And because Tuxin never wrote or s about his own work or spoke very rarely and in no depth on his own work, we just sort of left... To speculate, I suppose. Um, and from the point of view of, of hanging a show like that, yeah, um, I've always been interested to know um, about how you go about doing that sort of thing. Um, when you do, you first accumulate exactly how many works you want to show, mm -hmm. and then you have to. Um, you always start off with too many. <laughs> <laughs> the impulse of a curator, I think, is to try and include way too much. Yeah. And there's always the voice in this head that says, you can see the distinction between these two works, but um, one's enough. <laughs> you know, yeah, sometimes right. you have to pair back to make a point. Mm. Um, so I think, yes, so you start off with, I do anyway, a huge list of works. And you do really need to bring them down because there's something to be said with, you know, having repetition because it shows that he was into a particular idea. But sometimes you don't need five works to make the point that yeah. one work or two works can. Yeah. So I quite like that collection of drawings that yeah. are the charcoal drawings. There's about, yeah. I think, four or five of them. Yeah. With basically just... Uh, Very minimal lines. Minimal lines. Yeah. And I think it is good to have that selection there so that you can see that he was exploring that over and over again. Yeah. So there's, I suppose, you know, while you're looking at making a succinct kind of point, there are times when you want to make that point by having groups of works because he did work. That's how Tuxen worked. He worked in series. He produced, you know, a lot of works within a short space of time and then moving on to something else. Mm. So, yes, there's that 
there's that blend of both, including a lot of groups with a lot of works, yeah. and then having just the single or two works that might say a lot yeah. otherwise. Now, the, the exhibition's called Tuxen, the Abstract Sublime. Can you tell me a bit about how you came about that title? It was, I first thought of the title in response to uh, a critic and arts writer, Sandra McGrath, writing about Tuxen's work, and she was writing in reference to his last show at Waters Gallery in 1973. Oh, right. And she said, she spoke of the colours of his work being a revelation, the works being heroic in scale, the works being mysterious and profound, all these things. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing her probably very badly, but she said, with these elements, he's come up, Tuxen's come up with his own formula for the sublime. And I thought, ah, abstract sublime. Mm. Um, not realising, or I did, I think somewhere in the back of my head <laughs> was a memory of the, that that term was of course used um, in the 60s by Robert Rosenblum when he's writing about the artists of abstract expressionism. He's, he's writing a review of Barnett Newman, um, Jackson Pollock, Martha, Mark Rothko, and he refers to the abstract sublime. So clearly that had stuck <laughs> in my head somewhere, so I can't claim it as my own term. But I think, you know, Sandra McGraw wrote about his work in yeah. that sense um, so beautifully as well that I thought in particular to those last series of works, it's a really fitting title because it also connects Tuxen works to that larger movement of abstract expressionism mm. where you know and this is in post-war America and they're very stylistically very different group of artists but the writer and critic Barnett Newman wrote in 1948 the sublime is now so what he was saying was that these artists are looking at ways of expressing the ineffable mm. you know that sense of the the majesty, the awesomeness in the true sense of the word that the romantic painters were searching for, mm. but within these expressions of, of the self and within abstract form. So Tuxen, you know, shares stylistically, we might place him within that context of post-war American abstract expressionism, but his style is even more in his own way very distinct because it's so personal, because we get those inflections or influences of... Mm of Aboriginal art, of Pacific mm. art on his work. Mm. I think he reacts very strongly myself to a sense, a local sense of light as well. I mean, light plays a really strong role in his work. And to think of where he was working, you know, he's, he's reacting to the sense of, of those elements around him to mm. pursue this sense of a search for the ineffable. And, yeah. And, and it's, it, I think what I find so interesting about that is that it's such a it was such a personal search because yeah. he probably wasn't creating it for a show. He was just creating it in his own for his own exploration in a way. So well that's right. And you know, one can speculate or wonder how different his work might have developed if he had been a practicing artist all that time, if there were mm. those concerns of having to paint for an art market or, or just not even for an art market as a sense of an audience, you know, that someone's going to look at this work, that someone's going to critique it. Mm. And also you have a show and some of it doesn't sell and you think, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and as it turns out, I've heard from, you know, speaking to people who knew him, his first show didn't sell 
very well. Um, right. In fact, his second show, even though there was interest from museums buying his work, you know, it wasn't a sell. It's certainly not a sellout show by any means. But he didn't seem phased by that, mm. you know, when he was collecting his work after it didn't sell from yeah. Waters Gallery in 1970. He gave some to friends. Yeah. And I think it seems like for him he did want to see it all up there as a show mm. and that really made him, I think, look at himself and what he'd done as an artist and then move on again to something mm. new. So. Mm. And that's quite telling for Waters Gallery because they've got a they had a reputation for not worrying at all about whether a, yeah, that's sh a right. show's sold or yeah. not. So perfect fit. Yeah, in a way perfect. That, yeah, that that's they cool. were you know interesting in interested in really showcasing the new and 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 artists that really sort of shook things up a bit that were not what you'd expect and and mm. they found in Tuxen certainly someone an artist of that type as well. Mm. So. Well, Denise, congratulations again on a magnificent exhibition and thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. It was great catching up with Denise at the gallery. She's also responsible for a wonderful book on Tuxen, which is a great accompaniment to the exhibition. It's simply called Tuxen and in it there's a great essay by her as well as pieces from other contributors, including Aida Tomescu, who you'll be hearing from in the next episode. I've put a link to the Art Gallery of New South Wales bookshop on the website, but I'm sure it's also available where all good art books are sold. If you've got time, why not go ahead and click on episode 63 and hear Aida and me talk about the paintings themselves.